Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Who doesn't have a home church, and today's message actually might be just what they need. Uh, They're sitting at home and, and just chilling and scrolling through Facebook like a lot of us and a lot of you do, and so we want to make sure that we get everybody connected with that, they're having some technical difficulty in the back, so they will get all that taken care of. So don't panic there. But I want to talk to you just for a little while this morning. <laughs> Maybe you're like me and, and you grew up in a church similar to the way that I grew up. And if that's the case, then you discovered at a really early age that becoming a Christian is easy, right? Becoming a Christian is easy. It really ultimately costs us nothing. I mean, right? Jesus died on the cross. He died for our sins. The price has already been paid, and all we have to do is put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and, and then boom, you know, we're Christians. And, and so becoming a Christian when you're young and, and, and new, it's easy to become a Christian. That's what makes it so amazing. Uh, the price has been paid, but becoming a Christian is easy. And so this morning, you know this, and I know this, but if you look onto the pages of the Gospels, and when you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you don't read anything about becoming a Christian, right? You don't read anything about becoming a Christian. In fact, as well, you probably know this as well as I know this, that the word Christian was something that, that appeared to, from the, in the first century and, and the name Christian came from non-Christians. Non-Christians started calling Christians Christians. And, and it's believed that when it was first announced as Christians, that it was a slur or a, a derogatory term. Um, because Christians, uh, Christians simply means this. One associated with Christ. Or uh, a Christ one. And so... Uh, it wasn't like uh, a static label like being Canadian or being American or anything like that. It actually indicated a way of life. And so the term only shows up technically in our Bible three times. Luke, who describes the events following the resurrection, he actually documents uh, the first time that this appears in history, and it happened in a metropolitan city of Antioch. Um, but here's the interesting thing. In telling us how the label Christian originated, Luke actually clarifies what it meant to be Christian, or or at least what it meant back then to be Christian, maybe not so much today. But here's what Luke writes in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. He says, the disciples were first called Christians, everybody say Christians, at Antioch, okay? So this raises for us, for you and for me, a question. Disciples? The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So who were the disciples? Now I want to clarify. He's not talking about the 12 apostles that were, that were with Jesus. He's referring to a broader group of people, a larger group of people who were following Jesus. Okay, The, the term disciple always referred to in the New Testament, it referred to Jesus followers, people who publicly associated with Jesus before his crucifixion, and also people who followed and continued to live out the teachings of Jesus after his resurrection. So one of the reasons that we think the term Christian, when it was first given to us, was maybe labeled as a derogatory term is because first century followers were accused of being a part of an occult, okay? Have you ever been accused of being a part of an occult? Um, So they were accused of being part of a cult. Uh, They were referred to as a sect. In fact, to be more specifically, they were referred to as a Nazarene sect. 
And the reason it was called a Nazarene sect is because they followed a teacher from Nazareth. There, you answered that correctly. Good job. Way to keep up and follow along. So there was something unusual about these people that set them apart from their idol-worshiping counterparts, these people who worship the other pagan gods. There was something that set them apart there in Antioch. And so the citizens of Antioch, and you can understand this, the citizens of Antioch felt really pressed to come up with a name to identify, to label these people. Uh, they couldn't just say disciples because back in these days, all the rabbis and teachers of all different kinds of cultures, they also had disciples that followed them. So they couldn't just say disciples. That was pretty general uh, label for them. So they needed to come up with a term that specifically identified these particular people. And so they came up with the term Christians. Christians. And this is challenging for us, and it's challenging for me, and it's challenging for you. And you may be uh, comfortable, I don't know, claiming the, the badge or the title Christian. I mean, that's what we've been known for most of our life. You may be comfortable with that, the way it's labeled today, you know, in modern times. But here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today and for just a few minutes. And this, this really does kind of piggyback with the last several sermons that that, that Pastor Kevin brought last week about our relationship with the Father and Pastor Jay. But are you, am I, it's easy to become a Christian, right? It's easy to be a Christian, but are you and am I, are we a Jesus follower? So that's the question that I really want us to think about. Are we simply believing in or are we following his example? Am I being a good example or am I following his example? And this can be a terrifying question, to be honest with you. It's a terrifying question, and you see this, and here's why. It's because I can take the term Christian, and I can define, and I can redefine Christian until I feel fine, right? And you can take the term Christian, and you can define and redefine Christian until you... In other words, we can all take this term Christian, and we can define it and redefine it until we all feel good about our relationship as it pertains to Christ in our faith. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because you can take two Christians this morning, on Sunday morning, and you can pluck them out of two different Christian churches, and they probably don't believe all the same things. They probably don't live all the same rules and regulations and requirements. And that's why I'm saying it's easy to be a Christian because I can define Christian however I want, and I can feel good about my life as a Christian. Does that make sense? Amen. Thank you. But Jesus follower, to be a Jesus follower, it doesn't really need to be defined, okay? Does it? Because being a Christian is easy. It doesn't actually cost you anything. It's just free. You know, it's this gift that's given to us. But following Jesus, that actually costs us something. Following Jesus costs us something, and it costs some people more than others. And, and here's what we know, and here's what you know, and I'm going to tell you this story, is the ones that it costs the most are the ones that made the most difference. So if it doesn't cost us much, we're probably not making much of a difference. So as we talk about this all the time, I know we say it all the time here in the church, but Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of heaven on this earth. He came to reclaim and bring something brand new. He was the king, and we know this. He was the king who came to reverse and really change the order of things. So to follow Jesus then ultimately needs, means that we have to have a change of direction and really it almost means that we almost have to be uh, countercultural. okay to follow Jesus means there needs to be a shift in the way we think and do things this was certainly the case for the first century people that that Jesus was was ministering to and and those people who were immediately there on the scene Jesus made this really abundantly clear right out of the gate. He's preaching his most famous message, the most famous message that we know, his most uh, talked about, his most quoted message, and probably the most least applied message 
of all time. And we refer to it often as the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what happened. It says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 1. It says, now Jesus, when he saw the crowds, everybody say crowds. Okay, now remember, when Jesus, everywhere he went at, at this point in his ministry, he always attracted crowds, large crowds. <laughs> now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. And here's that word, disciples. And his disciples came to him. Now these followers of Jesus came to him, and he began to teach them. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm going to try to paint a picture the best I can. Think about how lucky this crowd of people were who were standing there or sitting there listening to Jesus. They were there at the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? That's a big deal, right? You're not impressed? Being there at the Sermon on the these, <coughs> these people, excuse me, were spectators at the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine? I remember back in 2005, I was sitting in a conference room in Wichita Falls, Texas. My pastor says this. He says, you know what? Today, tonight, the Astros are playing in the first ever World Series to be played in the great state of Texas. And he's a huge, he was a huge Astros fan. I was an Astros fan. And we were sitting in the staff meeting, and he just got teary-eyed. And he said, man, I can't believe I'm missing this. He used to live in Houston. And I said, well, let's go. It's, it's like 9 o'clock in the morning. We're at staff meeting. He looks around the room. He says, you want to go? Yeah, let's go. So all of us staff members, we jumped up, ran home, changed clothes, went to the ATM, pulled out cash because we didn't know how we were going to get tickets. He told me, he said, Jared, grab a van. So I went and grabbed a van, church van, for ministry use purposes as we ministered all the way to Houston. And I grabbed a van, and we hightailed it to Houston, Texas. We get to Houston, and I remember us walking around on the streets trying to find tickets, and we found tickets all together. We sat on the second level right behind home plate. It was the first time I'd ever been to Minute Maid. It was the first time I'd ever been to an Astros game live and I remember walking into the stadium. They had escalators in the stadium. I was like, this is unbelievable. I mean, I had goosebumps all over my body walking in. The atmosphere was electric. In fact, I, I, I believe in the first or second inning, we scored a run. And then the next inning, we scored two runs. And then like an inning or so later, we scored another run. We were up four to zero. And then the White Sox in the fifth inning scored five runs. And then... They're up now 5-4, and then in the eighth inning, we score one run. We tie the ball game. And then a ninth inning, 0-0, tenth inning, 0-0, 11th, 12th, 13th, all the way to the 14th inning. It was the longest game ever. Baseball's already long enough, and it was long. And in the 14th inning, the White Sox scored two runs just to rub it in a little bit that we got beat. We got swept by the White Sox on that day. My point is this, is that was a big deal being in that moment. I can say I was there. I was there at the first ever World Series game to be played in the state of Texas. I was there. These people were at the Sermon on the Mount. Ooh. That's pretty awesome. Think about this. I was also there a few years later, back in 2017, I believe, when the Astros were facing the New York Yankees. Game number seven, I believe it was, um, what was the day? Saturday, October the 21st, game seven, we ended up defeating the Yankees four to zero. Now, I know there's not a crowd in here this morning, but I can hear you at home going crazy because you remember that moment when the Astros beat the Yankees four to nothing, to go into the World Series. It was huge. It was epic. We were hugging people. We were crying. We were high-fiving strangers. We were just hugging everybody. I mean, we get in the car. We're driving out of the parking lot. Strangers are walking up to the car. We're high-fiving them. We're offering rides to anybody. Who wants. I mean, there was no stranger at the time. We were there in that moment. It was such a big deal. These people... These lucky people actually participated in an event that would shape Western civilization. 
it would actually reshape all their cultural values that they had had for generations. It would reshape their cultural norms. <laughs> Jesus stands up in front of the crowd and he turns everything in their world upside down. He starts saying some crazy stuff. He says things like this, love your enemies. Give away all your stuff. And when somebody asks for you a little, give a lot. When somebody asks to borrow something, let them borrow it and don't ask for it back. That's kind of crazy. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. And, and, and you got to make things right with people. If you want to have peace with God, then you have to have peace with people. In fact, if you go to the temple and you, you travel for two or three days and you're standing in line at the temple and you get almost to the front of the line and you're third in line and you remember that somebody back home, a two or three days journey, has something against you. Jesus says, leave your sacrifice at the temple Go back home and make things right with your brother and sister. Because to have peace with God, you have to have peace with your brother and sister and your father and your mother and your neighbor. That's important, to have peace with people around you. Jesus starts saying all these crazy things. And then he says this. Stop staring at the speck in your brother's eye. First, clean out the mess in your own eye. When you do that, then you can see your brother clearly, and you'll be able to help your brother. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not anymore, baby. Not in this kingdom. Huh? Blessed are those. Blessed are those. And about this time, the crowd's getting stirred up. Blessed, come on, I said, blessed are those. Who curse you? Come again. Huh? Say what? Blessed are those who curse. This was an epic, epic sermon. It was also distur disturbing. He literally turned their entire value system upside down. And then you go and you read it for yourself. He basically says all of that and then he mic drops and then he heads for Capernaum, okay? Matthew 7 says, when Jesus had finished, and I love this passage right here. When Jesus had finished saying these things, and I just gave you pretty much the summary of the things that he was saying, some of the things he was saying, it says the crowds were amazed. Everybody say amazed. Amazed at his teachings because he taught. Why were they amazed? Because he taught as someone who had authority. And, and not as their teachers of the law. And when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large, humongous, massive crowds followed him. It was a street party. It was like nothing they'd ever seen before. I mean, I've been a part of some pretty cool things, pretty epic things. I could even list more things that were huge to me, but maybe living in Houston, they weren't that big of a deal to you, or even in Texas or whatever. But I'm telling you, this moment in time, it was such a big deal. I mean, John the Baptist himself, he drew crowds. He had literally hundreds and actually thousands of people that followed John the Baptist. But Jesus, John the Baptist was kind of like the opening act. He was like the pre-show for Jesus. Jesus, the crowds that he drew was unbelievable. Talking tens and twenties and thousands of people that followed this guy around. He spoke as one who had authority. And maybe, just maybe, he's the Messiah. And then, a man with leprosy shows up. He shows up, and he steps right in front of Jesus, and he kneels down before him. Can you imagine what kind of downer that was? I mean, Jesus comes off the mountain. He's preached this incredible, incredible sermon. People are following him. They're high-fiving. They're like, yeah, did you hear what he said? This is great. This is awesome. This is great. They're following Jesus, and all of a sudden, a leper shows up and stands right in front of him. And people have to scatter. They don't want to get near this guy. It's like he's got the coronavirus, okay? They're, they're, they didn't have the masks and stuff. They started backing away. This guy, you can't get near him. And, and, 
And so they see this guy, and everybody starts to make space, and they're like, man, this was going so well. This was such a great day. And then this guy shows up. It says, a man with leprosy, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, a man with leprosy came, and he knelt down before him, and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus had just finished teaching Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? Wow, that's really big talk. I mean, that's some big preaching. And a lot of times, it's good. We come to church, and you hear some big preaching, some big, exciting preaching, and you get the whole crowd and the whole church going, yeah, this is awesome. This is awesome. But what's he going to do now? Because he's not on the mountain anymore. He's not preaching the same message anymore. You know the story. Jesus, he reaches out his hand to the man. I love this. It says Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. And he said this. I'm willing. He says, I'm willing. Be clean. And immediately the man was healed. Immediately, the man was cleansed. The crowd goes wild. This guy is not just talking a talk. This guy is walking the wall. This guy is actually, everything that he just said, he just, he's doing it. He's actually doing it. We saw the man with leprosy, and we started scattering like crazy. This guy, Jesus, he actually is doing what he, I mean, he actually pulls up to the intersection, sees the man and woman holding the sign saying, I need help. I'm, I have no money and no job. Jesus actually rolled his window down and gave them money. He's doing it. All these things that we don't think are going to actually work in our culture, he's actually doing it. He told us a lot of great things. We shouted him down. We said a lot of big amens. He actually just did it. This was crazy. And all of a sudden, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, after the crowd's so excited, after seeing this moment, the mood changes yet again. What happens next is really lost on us. I was trying to think of how to explain this and to explain the magnitude of what happens next. It's so crazy. Matthew doesn't even bother to elaborate on the situation because all of the people that were there that saw it and all of his first century readers that he's actually talking to when he writes this, they understood exactly what he's talking about. So he didn't bother to try to go into great detail. But in 2020, when we read what I'm about to read, it just doesn't make sense. To us, everybody there had, who heard about it, they got it. It was kind of like this. It was like a 17-year-old boy. He's talking to his friends about him and his girlfriend were down in the basement, and they were kind of cuddled up together in the dark. He's telling his friends about it, and then he tells his friends, and all of a sudden, the light came on, and we looked, and it was her dad. You know that moment? Where you're like, <laughs> awkward, right? His friends didn't ask him, well, well, how'd you feel, right? Because that would have been a dumb question because everybody knows how he felt, right? I mean, you weren't even there. I'm just making this story up, and you know how he felt. But the question that they did ask was, well, what happened next, right? This was that moment, okay? This was that moment in Jesus' life. Everything is good. Everything is going great. Everything. I mean, just preached this powerful message. And then the lights came on. And it's her dad. Right? So Matthew, he doesn't have to tell anybody how everybody felt in that moment, moment because everybody already knew. Here's what happened. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion. Everybody say centurion. Centurion came to him asking for help, and the world stood still. That's what happened. See, I built all that up for that, that one verse. Built all of that up just to say that one verse. And as I read that verse, you're like, okay, that's what happened? <laughs> really? That's how you relate the 17-year-old boy and the, you know, whatever? 
yeah, that, the, the, the world stood still because this was beyond awkward. This, Jesus just said things like, love your enemy, do for others, go the extra mile. These are all incredible hashtags you can put on TikTok and Facebook and Twitter or whatever all those other things are that you do, right? And, and, but surely, surely none of these, these one-liners are going to work on this guy, right? None of these hashtags are going to work on this guy. I mean, healing sick Jewish people, that's great because that's us. But this guy? Are you serious? You're going to waste your time on this guy? So, so I know you don't understand the context. So I'm going to give you some his, history here so that you can have some historical context and understand what I'm talking about and the gravity of the situation. So we don't feel this tension today in this moment. But everybody in Matthew's audience did, and here's why. About 100 years before this particular event, the Roman general Pompey, he enters into the city of Jerusalem and he completely desecrates the temple and the Holy of Holies. Okay, He gave himself a self-guided tour. He walks in and he wants to know what this God, this Jewish God is all about, right? He, he's thinking, okay, well, there's this God who, who doesn't want to be a part of the pantheon of all these other gods. There's this God who says he's the one and only true God. And there's this God who's a jealous God and you can't have any other gods. I want to know what this is all about. And so he walks into the temple, pushes the priest to the side. He takes that overly engineered curtain that separated the outer courts from the Holy of Holies. And he takes the curtain and he pulls it back and he walks in. And he's so disappointed. This is it. This is it. There's a, a golden table, a lampstand, like 2,000 talents of gold. There's no idol. There's no physical representation of a God. <laughs> Who are you crazy people? Who are you crazy people that built this huge temple without a God? Without a representation. This is crazy. And then he leaves. But he doesn't leave alone. He takes thousands of Jewish slaves with him. Wow. Judea and Galilee, in that moment, were essentially annexed into the Roman Empire. The Galileans and the Judeans, they lost their independence yet again. This is a big deal. They're forced again now to pay taxes to the pagan conqueror. Years later, another general shows up, Chrysus. And he actually goes into the temple again, and he steals all of the Jewish wealth. He steals all of the temple taxes. He takes everything that he could find, and he takes it back to Rome again. Then, 40 B.C., Herod the Great was crowned king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. The only problem is he's not even a Jew. He's not even a Jew. In fact, not only is he not even a Jew, he actually murdered multiple, multiple rabbis. One of his sons was actually responsible for executing John the Baptist, who was a folk hero to all the working class people in that region in that time, that era. Then Jesus, when he was somewhere in his 20s, Rome commissioned Pontius Pilate. The governor of Judea. Now, that's a name that sounds familiar, right? And Pilate is actually given credit for introducing crucifixion to the Galilean and Judean landscape. Thank you, Pilate, for that, right? He was constantly, always offending the Jews on purpose. He also stole all the money from the Jews, all the money from the Jewish treasury and from the temple treasury. In fact, Pilate was the only one that was so cruel to the Jews that they Rome recalled him back to Rome. Can you imagine that? He's the only person recorded in history that was so cruel that Rome even felt bad, and they recalled him back. That's, that's the kind of oppression 
that the Jews were living under. So when I'm talking about this centurion that steps up and faces Jesus and the magnitude of the situation, I want you to understand the point simply being this, that anything and everything that was associated with Rome was tainted. It was terrible. There was no good blood, no good feelings, no good vibe, no okay, we'll just make it work kind of feeling. It was all bad, every bit of it. This was not just a common soldier either. This was a centurion soldier. This man had earned his ranks and his authority through violence. That's how they ranked up. He obeyed without question and he obeyed without conscience. Centurions were severe disciplinarians. They actually flogged their own men and on occasion executed their own soldiers. But it got even worse because we know from history that at this time there were actually no Roman centurions stationed in Galilee until about 10 or 15 years after this event. So in all likelihood, historians believe that this particular gentleman, this centurion, had actually been recruited from a region outside or around Galilee. Well, that's a big deal too because everyone on the outside or around Galilee hated the Jews. They believed the Jews were a detestable race. They resisted Hellenization. They clung to their ancient culture and strange customs, and they refused to join the rest of the world. People from neighboring regions considered Jews to be the most racist because Jews kept to themselves. It was only us, us stick together as our, our four no more, right? In fact, Jewish men and families, they wouldn't allow their Jewish daughters to marry a Gentile man. It was forbidden. Jewish families wouldn't allow men to wear, marry Gentile women. It was forbidden. It was bad. It was not going to happen. In fact, a lot of you might remember this encounter. There's a story that, that is often told in church. We've told it in this church many times. There's a story about this woman at the well. In fact, we call the story the woman at the well, just like we call the sermon mountain, mountain sermon, sermon on the mountain, right? Anyway, so side note. So this woman at the well, Jesus goes up and he meets this woman at the well. Her response and her reaction to Jesus should tell you the tension that was felt in this time period in that region. Jesus talks to her and she looks at him and she says, I can't believe you, a Jew, are even talking to me. You're even talking to me. What? See, the magnitude. In fact, y'all remember Peter, right? Peter actually says this. He openly admitted. Peter said, look, I have never even stepped foot in a Gentile house. Never even stepped foot, and I would not dream of such a thing. Our beloved Peter. So no wonder people from bordering regions consider Jews to be a little bit strange, a little bit odd, to some extent maybe detestable, to some extent racist. This was the context and the tension and the emotion that I'm trying to paint for you in this moment when Jesus finishes preaching this incredible sermon he just has this encounter with the man with leprosy. And all of a sudden, he's stopped by a centurion. A centurion who's asking for help. So to the audience that's reading this and to the audience that's watching this, that's around, this was completely unacceptable. This is not a good situation. The centurion, he actually represented everything to Jesus that Jesus could hate. Personally, nationally, ethnically, religiously, everything was wrong. He had blood on his hands, but not just any blood. He had Jewish blood on his hands. And now he stands in front of Jesus and he needs a favor. 
Have you been there? We've all been there, right? What, you need a recommendation? You need me to give you a job recommendation after the way that you treated us and the way that you talked about us and treated our employees, and now you want me to give you a, <coughs> are you kidding me? Oh, you need to borrow money, right? You need to borrow money again? Yeah, what happened to the last time and the time before that and the time before that that I loaned you money? How much of that has you, have you paid me back? Huh? Hello, hello, nothing? Right, have you been there? And, and, and so there's this really intense moment because there's so much history behind what's happened. Now, this is what we have in common, and I believe this is probably to be true about you and about, about me, is that when, when we drive by or when we run into a stranger that is in need, deep down, we want to help. And oftentimes, we do. And when we do help people in, in need, strangers in need, it feels good, right? It feels good when you help someone in need. But to do good for someone who has caused pain to me, to do good for someone who has caused pain or who has hurt someone that I love, to do good to someone who (laughs) does not deserve it in the least, that's another story. That's just too much. See, becoming a Christian is easy. Salvation is free. It costs you nothing. But following Jesus is moving beyond what's reasonable. It's beyond what's expected. It's what's difficult. It's almost unnatural. And you could almost say that it's supernatural. But of course, that's kind of Jesus' point. And if you do good, remember he taught this. He taught this also in that famous Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you do good to those who are good to you, What credit is it to you? Even the sinners do that. (laughs) Right? I mean, even the sinners do that. If you do good for only those who do good to you, there's nothing unusual about that. That's a commonplace kind of brand of love. I mean, everybody does that. That's no big deal. And when you do that, what it does is it keeps you within your own tribe, and you just stay stuck together, and you never try anything outside of you. So there they stand, Jesus, the centurion. And the question was, what would he do? Not what did he feel, what did they feel. What did he do next? They heard what he preached, but what would he do? And unfortunately, you could probably guess this, and you've probably read the story. But once we read this story here in in a moment, you have to now make a decision. After we read the story, and after we read the story, I have to make a decision. We all have to make a decision, and we have to decide whether we will just be content with Christian or if we actually will become a follower of Jesus. Matthew 6, verse, Matthew 8, verse 6, it says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. He said, Lord, my servant is at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, again, remember the, the layout, the, the landscape of this environment. And people probably are, are going, wait, 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 wait. Are you kidding me? You mean you, a centurion, are coming to us and talking to us about somebody close to you suffering terribly? My, my family and my family's family, for generations we've suffered because of you and because of your nation and because of your empire. We've suffered because you, you personify suffering. You personify suffering terribly. We've all lived our entire lives suffering because of you and your nations and your armies and your legions. And we've suffered as long as I can remember, as long as my father's father's father can remember. And now all of a sudden you're coming to us asking for help to relieve some suffering of one of your servants? In fact, you've done just the opposite to us. Jesus actually could have chimed in if he wanted to. Jesus could have got involved and he could have said something like this. Thanks to you and your former emperor, my mother was, de- was forced to deliver me in a stable. Right? I mean, which worked out for Hallmark and the people that sell nativity scenes and stuff. That's beside the point. The point is, it wasn't good. 
It was bad. Now, <laughs> Jesus, if he was granting this man's request, if he was to grant this man's request, it could potentially be very dangerous for him. He could lose the crowd. He could lose the patriots. He could lose the working class. He could, the rumors would start to spread. It could actually be the end of his mission. But Jesus came to introduce a new kind of kingdom, something new for the world. He had come to introduce new morality, new ethnic, new way of seeing the world. Maybe, more importantly, a new way of seeing everybody actually in the world. So in keeping with his own teachings, Jesus goes on and, and he just begins to illustrate it so perfectly. And he chose to do good for someone who didn't deserve it. Someone who had done unimaginable harm to his people. To someone who had captured and, and created and imprisoned and bound up and oppressed his people for generations. To someone who ultimately, not too far down the line, would be a part of the empire that crucifies him. Jesus saw that coming. Jesus said to him, okay, yeah, should, should I come to your house? Is that what you want me to do? Okay, yeah, you want, should I come and heal him? <coughs> I'm telling you, the crowd, the people are like, he's gone too far. This is crazy. In context, you have to understand the, the crazy magnitude of this situation. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve for you to come under my roof, to which probably people begin to chant in the crowd. I mean, if this happened today, this was like a riot happening, okay? If this happened today, there would be thousands of cell phones up recording it for TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook, and all them other things, right? And everybody would be recording this, and they'd be hashtagging it, hashtagging it, you know, hashtag preacher from the mount gets jumped, hashtag or whatever, you know, they're, they're doing and so this was a big deal. And people were like, yeah, you don't deserve. He, you don't deserve him to come to your house. You don't deserve him to come under your roof. <coughs> but he says, Jesus, you don't need to come to my home. But Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. This is a really, really big expression of faith presented by this centurion. He basically says, Jesus, you and I, you know, we're not so different. He goes on, he says, I myself, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go, and he goes. I tell this one to come, and he comes. I, I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. So Jesus, ultimately, what I'm saying is, I, I, I don't need you to come to my house. I know who you are. I just need you to say the word, and, and I know my servant will be Healed. And again, to the shock of the crowd, Jesus steps out of line and he commends, he applauds this man for his faith. Jesus says, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And then I think he pauses, he looks at the crowd, maybe smiles. And he goes to Peter's house for lunch. Once again, the crowd standing, stunned, shocked, in awe. He spoke as one who had authority. He's matching his words with the actions. And this is what's blowing their mind. He, first of all, he takes all of their value system, flips it upside down, messes with it. And then he actually starts living it right in front of them. These were more than hashtags. He actually, actually expects us to literally do good for those who don't and won't do good for us. He expects us to literally do good for those who don't look like or like us. He expects us to do good for people who don't even like us at all. So back to us. No wonder, right? <clears throat> no wonder that we reduce our faith to a label, right? 
No wonder we're content to just take notes, feel bad about ourselves for a moment, and then retreat to what's comfortable. Because honestly, it's easier to become a Christian than to be a Jesus follower. Being Christian is easy. Being a Jesus follower, that's what separates people. That's what separates us from everyone else. It's easier to do good for strangers than for an offender. It's easier to love people who look like me, who think like me, right? Who are correct like me, huh? Who love like me, who agree with me. It's easier to be Christian than a Jesus follower. And if that's what you choose, if that's what we choose to be, a Christian versus a Jesus follower, then we contribute to the challenges that we are facing as a nation right now. Right now. And I tell you why. It's because if you don't choose to follow Jesus, you will simply be content to believe. You'll be content to believe. And you know what? Here's the thing about it. You're going to believe the right things. You're going to believe that all men and women are created in the image of God. Somebody say amen. You're going to believe that we are all created equal and that they, that they have this intrinsic worth and that we have a divinely assigned value. You're going to agree with C.S. Lewis when he made this extraordinary statement and says that there are no ordinary People, that there are no mere mortals. You're going to believe from the bottom of your heart that a person's value and dignity is not assigned by man, but it is assigned by God. But if you decide to follow Jesus, and if I've not decided to follow Jesus, you haven't decided to follow Jesus, then it ends there. It ends with belief. Good belief. But that's it. Just believe. If we don't decide to follow Jesus, we will not act. We won't act on what we claim to believe when it costs us something. And we will not react when we see people treated unjustly, unkindly, unfairly. Now, here's the interesting thing. And apparently Jesus saw this coming. He saw all of this coming. He seemed to have anticipated maybe a generation that would be really content to just believe or to just know and actually not do anything. So this is really cool because Jesus reserved his final words, his harshest statements for the, you know, this famous Sermon on the Mount. The biggest statements of all, he reserved them for the people who would hear and not do. Who would agree, but wouldn't act. For the people that come to church and go, hey man, that's good preach. For the people who watch online and go, woo, Pastor Jared, that's good preach, whatever. But actually don't do anything about it. He reserves these harsh words for them. And in his closing statements of his most famous sermon, here's how he closes it. But everyone, who's he talking to? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Everyone who heard this sermon and shouted me down or whatever and doesn't do anything about it, the person who hears these words of mine and refuses to put them into action is like a foolish man. Specifically, they are a fool. Because they have fooled themselves into thinking that they are better than what they actually are. He who doesn't put it into practice is a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came, the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. The men and women who make a difference in the world are not, hear me when I say this, the men and women who make the biggest difference in the world are not the men and women who believe right. They are the men and women who act 
and they react when something isn't right. It's not about just believing right, but it's about acting and reacting when things aren't, aren't right. Even when it costs them something. So here's my invitation to you. Here's my invitation to us and to me. Let's not be content with Christian. You know, because everybody around us, everybody in the world has their own definition. They've already defined and redefined that term. (laughs) And to be honest, for a lot of people, it's not good. That term really is not strong. It's not powerful. It's not, it's not pretty. But let's follow. Let's follow. Let's continue to do good for those who can't or who won't do good for themselves. And then when the centurions in our world, they show up when Everything in us recoils at the thought of leveraging our resources and our time and our reputation for their good. Let's remember this because honestly this is is at the epicenter of our faith. It's the, the basis of who we are. This is the why behind the what. This is why Jesus could say what he said and why Jesus could expect us to follow through. This is what compelled, now listen to this statement. This is what compelled the post-resurrection followers to embrace this new kingdom ethic to such an extent that it eventually captured the imagination of the whole empire that was against them. That was a movement. That was powerful. Let's remember this when we're confronted by the centurions in our world. Romans 5, it says, But God demonstrated, but God acted, but God, He reacted, but God demonstrated His own love for us, towards us in this, that while we were yet centurions, Christ died for us. Thank God we were born on this side of that. We were born into that. God's demonstration of love. We are a manifestation of that to our neighbors and to our world and to our families. God demonstrated his love towards us in this, that while we were yet centurions, while we were yet sinners, he he died for us. And then he rose. He rose from the grave. and, And from the pages of the New Testament, I believe, God looks back at us and he's saying this. Jesus is saying this to you this morning. Come, follow me. Follow me. Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of other good stuff. There's a lot of good Christians, a lot of good churches, a lot of good value systems. There's a lot of good ethics out there. But I'm asking you, follow me. Follow me. Christian, that's great, but not everybody lives up to what that is. Follow me. Me. I'm the example. I came and I lived the perfect example. I acted and I reacted the way that I want you to act. The way I want you to react. When you're having a good day and all of a sudden a man with leprosy is right in front of you and kind of stops your whole day. I want you to act and react the way I showed you. And then when a centurion, somebody that hates you, that despises you, if you have an opportunity to help them, I'm asking you to act and react. 
because I, you don't know this now, and, and this would be Jesus talking to these first century people, but Jesus could say, I'm about to demonstrate why I expect you to follow through with all of this stuff. I'm about to demonstrate why this is not just talking a big talk. This is not just a ha hashtag. I'm about to demonstrate why I expect you to do good for those who probably won't ever do good by you. Because I'm going to show you my love for you in a way that will never, ever, ever be matched in history. And together, Jesus would say, we'll astonish the world with a brand of love that has the potential to change everything. And let me tell you, friends, if there was a time that the church needed to stand up and stop being Christian and start being followers, it's today. It's today. This world, this generation needs to see people that are acting and reacting, not out of anger and frustration and bitterness, but are that are acting and reacting out of love. That while they're still centurions, he loved them. That while they're still centurions, Christ died for them. It doesn't matter. This is not a political thing. It doesn't matter which side of the fence you ride. What matters is, are you a follower or not? I choose today to follow. I want to follow Jesus' example with all my heart. When people look at me, I want them to see a Jesus inside of me that's so full of love and forgiveness and grace and mercy that it's almost crazy. Because Jesus said it right before he left. He said, by this, all people will know that we're connected by your love. For everyone else, your love for one another. Jesus, I pray right now, God, that somehow, some way, a light bulb will, will just go off in our hearts this morning. That a, a spark will light up inside us this morning, and and we'll we'll finally look at ourselves and go, you know what? I'm so done. I'm so not content with being a Christian. In fact, I don't even really care about even using that label anymore because it's been so tainted and it's been so warped and manipulated for so long. What I want to be known as, I want to be known as someone who looks like Jesus, who talks like Jesus, who walks like Jesus, who forgives like Jesus, who loves like Jesus, who has compassion like Jesus, who rebuilds hope in people's lives like Jesus did. That's what I want to be known for. And God, this morning, to everyone that's listening, I pray that that stirs on the inside of them. That it doesn't matter if anyone ever does good back to us as hard as sometimes that is just by human nature but we'll love like we've never loved and we learn to follow in Jesus name I pray amen amen thank you pastor Jared for that powerful word